Hello, Heron. Hi, Tom. <clears throat> How are you doing this evening? Well, I'm here. <laughs> I, I got a glass of wine. Oh, very nice. You're doing it properly. <laughs> Just well, like always. Very good, very good. So I've been catching up on your podcasts recently. <laughs> really? I haven't posted anything in ages. Well, that's exactly my point. I mean, that's, that's yeah. been wonderful because I've been listening to podcasts in ages. So, you know, <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed your uh, catch up with Tom Vine, actually. That was very nice. Mm. And it was all of what? Four, five months ago now. Four months ago now. So. Um, I don't know. I got like 20 in the stack that I haven't edited. Uh huh. You know, I'll get around to them. I got one guy who keeps bugging me, you know, and after he's bugged me five or six times, I finally can't stand it anymore, and I'll go edit a couple, yeah. <laughs> throw them up, <laughs> and then after a couple of weeks, he, he gets pissed again, and <laughs> so. Yeah, it's been, it's been about 14 months, I think, since we last spoke. 14 months? Yeah. <sighs> I've gone through a series of really quite strange periods in my life, and I've actually, for periods of those times, I've wanted to talk to you, but I've just lost, like, some internal narrative or something. Something has gone seriously wrong with my programming over the past 14 months. Oh, that's not necessarily wrong, but it's maybe changing rapidly. Oh, without question. I think it's it's gone through... One of the more sizable evolutions was when I went to the Artificial Life Conference in Michigan, which was July last year, and... I don't know, the nature of the work that I do currently is just so removed from speech, I mean, coherent speech, that to then be surrounded by academics was just another point of complete incoherence. But I realised <laughs> after that experience that what I had done for the past 16 plus years wasn't really artificial life. It was a really quite strange deconstruction of of my you know, I don't know, no yeah. late existence. And I realized quite strongly that I thoroughly enjoyed what I was doing, but it certainly wasn't artificial life. Yeah, it's whatever it is, but you know what you like, and yeah. that's what counts. Yes. The other thing is, following that, I stayed at the university for a week following that, that hosted it. Um, and boy, just a completely different caliber of language monkey existed there. It made Where me was this? This was Where? in um, East Lansing, Michigan. Okay, but is... the, the, the people who were attending this were from all over, though. No, they? I think most of them were from Michigan. From East Lansing, okay. <laughs> no, actually, of the, conference, of the conference, there were about 200 attendees, and 80 of them were students at East Lansing. Oh, okay. So let me describe the conference, actually, too. And I, this, what, what conference was this? This was the Artificial Life Conference, which happens every other year. This was, I think, maybe the 16th Artificial Life Conference. Uh, uh -huh. that had, yeah, so back going on. It's got oh, a yeah. history. Yeah. yeah. And um, I gave six hours worth of tutorials on the first day. So I flew in the day before. I was, it's funny because it's on Eastern Standard Time, even though it's in the Midwest. <laughs> so I had a strange kind of jet lag initially. It was really, really humid. And they have all this strange kind of sports militarism thing going on at the university as well. So there was, like, cheerleading tryouts while I was teaching <laughs> tutorials. It was all very, very curious. Yes. Welcome to Earth. Yes. <laughs> the thing that struck me was just that none of the people that attended had the same kind of drive that I had. Like, it was just like they were just 
It was a job? You mean they... they yeah, were, it was just disconnected yeah. from the kind yeah. of... I The first tutorial, all this stuff is recorded. I should actually point you to the recordings of this. But I was just surrounded by... And some of them were academics. Some of them were not academics, but would just come to the ALF conference. But they just weren't ready. Like, they were just not even baked. I mean, there was something really... Very they probably strange. just read about the idea and think it's no, cool. No, 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 no. These are people that have been doing what they consider artificial life for many years. Really? In many oh, cases. Okay. Oh, some okay. of them were new students. Uh, some of them were students who had PhDs in the field and had done it for at least three years. None of them knew the history, and none of them could, like, put it together with things in the, you know... I mean, I used examples of Toyota, Yahoo. I used companies that could utilise ideas in artificial life. And maybe it was like maybe it was nine thirty in the morning for them, but they were just not in any way turned on. And I released the edio, I released the audio unedited, so you can actually hear the lengths of pause between me asking a relatively basic introductory warm up question and anyone even responding. I mean, you could count the seconds in terms of the the, the kind of cogs whirring. Yeah. It wow. was a very strange... Um, <laughs> oh, man, that would have been uncomfortable. <laughs> it was a very strange indication to me that academia has, in my 10 years being outside and distrustful of academia, it has actually gotten worse, not better. Yeah. Well, that's why I left back in the 60s. It was the same thing then. <sighs> so, yeah, well, that was not the same thing, but it was, it was still not the place. It was not the cutting edge, no. that's for sure. <laughs> It's not, it's not even that it's not the cutting edge, it's that they don't appreciate that they're so dull. <laughs> well, you know, who knows, yeah. Of course, you're getting a particular type of academic in artificial questions. life. Yeah. You know, I, uh, and to be fair, to be fair, there were some very nice academics and there were some very nice folk who had listened to bio yeah. to podcasts and had a sense of me in some regard, but they still weren't my people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I well, went through. If you ever find your people, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still looking. Well, this is the beauty of open source. I mean, I found people through who contact me through Noble Ape. So one of the interesting characters. I was down in Burbank. Um, the company I worked for had a party down in Burbank because that's the kind of thing they do. And um, I met one of the animators, the lead background animator on The Simpsons is a fan of Noble Ape. He contacted me about midway through last year, and he's drawn pictures of Noble Apes for me and submitted them to me. <laughs> so I had cool. dinner with him and his girlfriend, and he is a fascinating character. So I do know the others are out there. I do know my people are there. Yeah. Oh, the world is full. There are yeah. millions and millions of absolutely mind-boggling people out there <laughs> if we could only figure out how the hell to meet them. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think Noble Ape's been successful in a small part to do that. So I don't... I mean, if anything, I've really doubled down my efforts with Noble Ape because having seen and following it, I had a meeting with an academic and I realised that I'd been working on Noble Ape to have this meeting. He was so dismissive <laughs> and hostile. He's, I think he's from Belgium originally. And he was just so... Uh, you know, yeah, this no, is nothing, I I, this is yeah. not important. And I just thought, the thing was that when I actually got talking to him, I realised that he had attempted to do a couple of the things that I did in Noble Ape and not succeeded. And when <laughs> I produced that for him, when I showed that to him, he... Well, then, that would even make him work, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. And yeah. then he said, now you he's know... really pissed. <laughs> he said, this is not science, this is not even a toy. And I said... I'm not interested in practicing science. My role in doing Noble Ape is about philosophical satire. 
you can do science, that's fine, and if you want to use Noble Ape, use Noble Ape as you want to use it, but I'm not a scientist, and my role is not scientific. Yeah. I'm doing yeah. philosophical satire. And, you know, there were a few points where I put him in this, oh, he said, just because a couple of engineers at Apple used it doesn't mean that, you know, it got into Apple. And I said, actually, that's not the case. Let me describe to you what happened. Yes, initially, a couple of engineers used it, but then they championed it. Then, you know, 10 engineers used it. Then 50 engineers used it. Then there was an engineering open source manager who started championing it. And I said, you know, when you start talking about these things, and then I described the team at Intel. I mean, the problem was that, unfortunately, this fellow is an archetype of the dismissive academic he was the fellow who has been literally controlling what papers come to the Artificial Life Conference. Let me talk about the papers that were presented there. The papers that were presented there were like something from 18 to 20 years ago. It wasn't even cutting edge in the area. It was basically a historical reminiscing about what had occurred. Those well, wait, let me ask you a question. Is there any agreed upon definition of artificial life to begin well, the, with? The thing is that there is an, there's always an The thing I like about artificial life as a definition is that these people who originally started it, who have these conferences, have lost control of the definition. So now there is IEEE artificial life. Now there's the Eco Conference. There are a whole series of other conferences that do artificial life now. Okay, but, but at least are the participants aware of the fact that artificial life is just a word? <laughs> and, I don't yeah, know. I no, mean, I, I guess not. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. They're all a bunch of language monkeys, like you said. Yeah. They, they actually believe all that shit. Yeah. It, it was Never a very, mind. It was a very strange experience which left a kind of linguistic deconstruction because I realized, firstly, that I was pushing... I'd done various things to try to assist and help these people, and then I realized I really have no business helping these people. You know. <laughs> well, you probably have no business even talking with them for one for any reason whatsoever. Mm. You know, man, you, you sound like you're on your way to becoming a hermit. Well, where I am. That's what I chose. <laughs> no, actually, actually, the reverse is true, Heron. The reverse is true because, and I think, and I hope, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in in a few minutes. But what I've realized is that it's not that my problem is with the world, it's that my problem is with this group of people. And there are certainly, and the Simpsons guy is a good example of this, but a wide variety of other folk who I no, think... No, there are plenty of yeah. wonderful people. Exactly. It's just that the trick that's is finding a, those really, people. they're talking about yeah. 1% or something. But they exist. You know? Yes, of course they yeah. do. Yes. Well, we've been through this a hundred times. <laughs> you know? I think 32 <laughs> times, but yeah, anyway, I'm on yeah, the way yeah. to 100 times. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, there aren't that many people out there that I'm actually interested in spending any time with. Mm. So, okay, it's been 14 months. I've kind of caught up with elements of of, you know, what's gone on particularly recently in your life. But I mean, in terms of Really? <laughs> you may have a better handle on it than I do. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you're still working you're still working at the paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Your your dog has passed away. Yes, he did. Well, I mean, he didn't pass away. He was murdered. Oh, no. <laughs> you know? But, I mean, you know, in a painless way. But, I mean, oh, okay. he, so he was he put, put down. down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did yeah, you participate in that process or you just heard about it? No, um, I probably, you know. It was a it was a really weird night. I don't know if you want to hear about that whole story. I mean, I've there's got a time. 
Yeah, well, basically, he'd always had problems. He'd had uh, fit. He'd have seizures. Oh, I remember, like epileptic seizures. Yeah, yeah. 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 Only, only in the in the three years that I had him, I I saw it twice, and apparently it happened maybe once or twice another time. Someone else saw something. It happened once while we were on a call together. I remember oh, that. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, and he always he had all he had this weird lump in his tail mm. always the base of his tail mm. was like a cyst or something yeah. you know and um anyway but he was all anyway one day uh he was blind mm. i went outside and i called him and i couldn't find him and i found him in his in his uh little house and it took me a little while to figure out that he actually was blind mm. So he went to the vet. I, he, they're not. He's not my dog. I don't own him. People here, you know, own their house too. So anyway, they took him to the vet, and it turns out his whole body was just riddled with cancer and yeah. to his brain. And uh, there's just you know nothing to do. Yeah. He wasn't in any pain or anything. He he was okay. He just was blind. Yeah. So uh, well, after you have that, no way of obtaining any knowledge to assist you in terms of the kind of pain he was in. You have no primary way of assessing his pain. Well, oh yeah, I think I do. Sure, he acted perfectly normal. He we wasn't we had the dog, which was yeah. my wife's, that had cancer. And we had no indication aside from uh, weight loss and things. But he never indicated, he wasn't, I mean, they don't moan, but clearly they have things inside them that if they were inside of us, we would describe it in a painful way. Well, maybe we would, but he's, he'd, uh, his behavior wasn't changed in the slightest, except mm. that he was a little unsure when, when walking. But he wagged his tail and he, mm -hmm. and he walked around with no limping or mm -hmm. weird anything. He seemed perfectly normal, except that he was blind. Maybe he was in pain. I don't know. Mm. But anyway, it became clear that there was nothing to be done, uh, that it was just going to get worse and... So anyway, the they were going to take him to the to the this place where they put him down and uh, brought him by the house so that I could say goodbye to him. Mm. And there were a whole bunch of people, you know, the whole family was out there and uh, mm. and I could have gone but I didn't. Um there were I just didn't want to be around those people at that time. So they you know, he I spent a few minutes with him, maybe 10 minutes he was mm -hmm. there, you know, and then um I went back in my part of the house, and they took him to mm. the place and put him down. When and, was that? Oh, I don't know, a few months ago now. It's been mm. quite a while. He had a little friend for a while. What happened to his little friend? Uh, he got uh, given away to somebody who wanted him. He was a bit rambunctious, I seem to recall. Yeah, he was. they were glad to get rid of him because he got into everything. Or she did. She was a great yes. little dog. Well, you, his, those two are on my, the front of my Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Of course, so, yes. yeah, right. yeah, those yeah. are the two, yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, you making a commitment to an animal, there's absolutely no possibility that you would ever own a dog in your current circumstances. Well, no possibility in my current circumstances sort of is self-contradictory. <laughs> well, this is what I'm asking you because yeah. I've, I've heard you well, say I don't things know what like – No, I'd like to have a dog. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if I can arrange circumstances where that would be a reasonable possibility, I'd probably get another dog. Yeah. Or get a dog. Yeah. I, uh, I just need a stable – but again, to have a dog, I think you've you got to have certain things for it. You know, a yard, big enough yard and – I mean, I wouldn't have had a dog in this place where mm. I live now. Is I, I think it was a shitty place for a dog. Mm. But he was a great dog, and he was here, so I made yes. the most of it. Yes. But yeah. I wouldn't buy a dog and have him live here. Mm. 
So in terms of, you mentioned you're back in the conversation with Tom Vine. In terms of your general health, how are you feeling? Um, well, actually, I've decided that this year is going to be about getting my body back under control. Mm. And uh, so I'm, I'm doing serious uh, physical work, physical exercise. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's really, in a sense, the whole focus of my life right now. The rest of the stuff, I mean, I've really pretty much finished my linguistics work. It's really, that's just about packaging now, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, so how many stupidities are we to? Oh, five is, is plenty. Okay. One's enough. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I mean, you were, you, the, for a period you were talking about four stupidities. With, yeah. And um, my sense was it could move towards. It could, well, one's enough. It's, it's, yeah. if, once you get the idea, <laughs> you got it. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. the, the rest is just, um, well, the rest is useful as part of the reprogramming. You know, of reprogramming your language machine so that when it's on autopilot, that it doesn't generate all that stupid bullshit. Hmm. So those are all good things to know about and to work on. Uh, you know, installing triggers for them. But so part of part of the process over the past fourteen months and why we haven't done recordings from my perspective is that my work is so heavily language-programmed that the ability to move from what and we used And to, which work is this? Well, the company I work for. So, the you know the company I work for. Anyway, so, um, the... It's it's an interesting company to work for because but it's see, a, everything is... I mean, there's... Yeah. What in life is not totally dependent upon language? I think there... Boxing, maybe boxing. (laughs) No, I think certain personal relationships are not dependent on language. I think you can construct relationships which are not dependent on language. I I think you're living in la-la land. You'd like that. They're not, I mean, it it may be a relatively less important part of it, but it's certainly one of the determining factors whether you like it or not. I I don't think there's any way around that. Well, your relationship with the dog wasn't based on language. No, of course, but the dog, well, it, it depends on your definition of language, but certainly not normal kind of language, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was no the in your relationship with the dog. Well, not, not as such. You know, there I, no ab- yeah. Maybe there were absolutes, but there were no absolutes as you describe it in your relationship no, with no, the dog. No, it's not like relationships I have with humans who speak English. It's, that's a completely different universe, absolutely. That's my point, however. But so, my- well, yeah, and if you have – if, yeah, like if there's a whore that you pay to screw <laughs> – you know, that's you a topic have, I wanted to discuss with you, you actually. I actually be able to have a totally animalistic relationship. So this is this is the elements of I've been listening back to Stone Ape periodically. I do return to it on a on a kind of periodic <laughs> basis to get elements which I missed in the original recordings. And one of them was your description of being in uh, Japan in one of your off periods from Vietnam. And the experience of being in a room with a Japanese prostitute and thinking fondly of Vietnam. <laughs> and I thought, why, when this was said, did I not do some kind of deconstruction of this particular point? Because that is an image that kind of fascinates me in terms of, uh, and I think it exists currently too. I mean, I'm sure. I don't think those two thoughts 
were overlapping like that. I mean, they both occurred during my stay oh, there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't, the prostitute it wasn't while I was with the prostitute. I was thinking, boy, I wish I was back in Vietnam. <laughs> no, it was more like when I was in the hotel room alone with none of my stuff, <laughs> you know, that I'd accumulated. Mm. My stereo, you know, or my books or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I... <laughs> yeah, you could make a really interesting story out of that, couldn't you? <laughs> I think this was this was the thing is that it just caught me. There were a few points I'm trying to think off the top of my head what some other ones were. But so the other element that always strikes me is where where is Alan Watts today? Mm. Dead. That's I don't know exactly where they point. buried him. That, that, that's exactly. But my point is where. So they have people like Daniel Pinchbeck who talks about, I don't know what he talks about now, now 2012 is over. But you have all these people that are supposed to be representing the, you know, McKenna's and um, the Learys and the Watts. And they just, the... I don't know. There are millions of other people who read Watts, whose name you will never know and I will never know. Mm. I know... At least a hundred people now that I've met in the last couple of years who Watts has just made a huge difference in their lives. Mm. You know, they're, they're nobody. They're just people who, you know, maybe married and have kids or have a job or they're in high school or whatever. And they read Alan Watts and it totally changed the way they think about everything. So one of the things I've done over the past year, in fact, I've just finished speaking to my brother in Australia. And now annually, I don't know why maybe because I haven't protested enough. <laughs> he he gives me these annual subscriptions to various magazines. Last year was to Playboy. And the thing <laughs> oh, that struck good. me about Playboy was my wife loves Playboy. I'm not... I mean, I like the interviews. The projection of female <laughs> beauty I find very strange. But yeah. what I've done recently, and I've done this with other magazines as well, is that I'll buy magazines from the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s. Yeah. So in, within the past week, I purchased three Playboys from 1971 with the view that my wife would read them cover to cover. Um, and it is absolutely the, the psychology of the, well, the consumerist psychology for a start as portrayed in the early 1970s and the late 1960s. is just so completely alien today. <laughs> but the notion yeah. of the long-form interview... The, they had interviews of, you know, 15, 20 pages. Yeah. And they had academics write in. There yeah. There were, like, seven pages worth of academics and people who were, like, head of senatorial committees and things that wrote for yeah. Playboy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it really was a different... Robert world. Anton Wilson exactly. was an editor at Playboy exactly. for a while. <laughs> no, and the thing that struck me was just that this this is a period which is... I guess lost in modern consciousness, you have various kind of percolations through, but the whole notion of what these periods of time were like, I mean, obviously the opportunity to... Well, the media has, you know, the form of the media has changed. It's the internet now, Mm. you know? I mean, magazines was it. And radio. the The assertion that the internet has in some way given us this information to, you could never get the kind of information that you get through these things on the internet. Well, but the, this stuff is available on the internet. It's not. W- what is it that's not available? Well, you can't get, including advertising, not even in PDF form, 
uh, a Playboy from 1971. Ah, just well, you will soon enough. If that's that's a no, shortcoming of the internet. No. Well, what you'll need if, is if you have them, why don't you PDF them? That's a good point. You're right. It's my responsibility. It's not Damn your right. That's the way it's going to happen. It's somebody's going to do it. Yes. Yeah, maybe you could start the Internet Playboy archive. The problem is that, that would be awesome. <laughs> the thing about it is, now what I what I need to do. Yes. I will write a single page concise plea to Hef, indicating that the oh. parts of the, the po- pornographic, the photo elements of Playboy, are not the important point of his legacy, the interviews, because he's now doing this. He, well, you don't have to negate that. It's both and. It's not either or. You don't have to attack him. I'm not attacking him. <laughs> My point is that basically the internet currently, I mean, if you search for these playboys, you'll see the pictorial elements online. You yeah, won't see the interviews. Yeah, interesting. So the yeah, the, this could be... Um, yeah, yeah, he might just do it. It would be easy mm, for him to just do it. Mm. Two of the interviews that caught, well, one caught my wife and one caught me. The the one caught my wife, which I already knew about, was an interview with John Wayne. And the thing about John Wayne, particularly even in 1971, was that he was bitterly racist. <laughs> and he, the things that he said were just surreal. My wife would literally read a paragraph and read two thirds to the whole paragraph back to me. Just to say it out loud. I mean, it, she was just stunned through this period. And the the one that I read was an interview with um, is it Rudolf Hess, Hess the the Nazi who was imprisoned for how many years? Oh, I don't. Hitler's know. architect, anyway. And that I found fascinating too, for different reasons. Just no, you're talking about Shire, Shire or no, Shire Hess, or something. Hess. Oh, okay. All right, I, I was thinking of someone else. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Anyway, so I think, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, but I've obviously got to get it to him relatively quickly, although, yeah. I'll, I'll think on this more, Heron, and I'll certainly publish Yeah, that's later. a shortcoming of the internet. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think the... Everything uh, should be available. Everything that can be available should be available on the internet. That's exactly. just, you know, that's just, that's where we're headed. That's what we want. That's what I want. That's what you want. Amen. Well, <laughs> the thing is, okay, yes, I do want it, but I want it, um, I want it with all the grit. I, this is the thing. <laughs> all the grit? What, do you want to get the toxic chemicals on your fingertips? I want is the that advertising. The advertising. You see, if you just put up the interviews, I'm, I'm deconstructing. No, it should be, they should be the magazines yeah. themselves, yeah. just PDFs, P- TIFF file or yeah. JPEGs, that's yeah. all. Yeah. Well, it'd be better if they were searchable. So, yeah, they, I mean, ideally, it shouldn't be just TIFFs. I mean, the images can be TIFFs, but, mm. uh, yeah, it should be uh, searchable text. So, in parallel to this, obviously, the, the only podcasting organ which I have maintained through my period of m- melees with my current employer has been Model Rail Radio. Yeah, but you got a, a following there. <laughs> I'm now. I've now. I'm writing software with Noble Ape to actually edit the Model Rail Radio podcasts because I'm getting submitted listener audio. I mean, the shows could go on for ten hours if I let them continue in a natural progression because people just keep calling in. Yeah, and then we are getting to the point where we're more popular than the major magazine. Okay, that's a problem. It's not a problem for me at all, but the magazine is scurrying desperately. I actually, I, I, after the Artificial Life show, a week after going to the Artificial Life conference, I went to a train show with a week of the kind of academics in between. And at the train show, I went into the 
into a model railroader's booth and introduced myself. And I was of the mindset where I would, be, when we reached a thousand, a hundred thousand listeners, that I would actually place an ad in in Model Railroader, and the listener outcry was so great that I've dropped that. Yeah, they don't want an ad in Model Railroader. Yeah, they want more show. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, in going into well, then then you need to figure out a way to get them to produce the the material for you. <laughs> Well, what happened was over the month of January, I had work-related nonsense, and then I got this cold thing, which took three weeks to get out of me, and I couldn't speak properly. Um, and through that period, every weekend, listeners recorded seven, eight hours worth of audio and, and gave it back to me. Yeah. So it's almost there. I, I think yeah. the only distinction is that when listeners record it, there's a certain thing that I do associated with actually kind of crowd control, moving topics along so people yeah, don't Yeah, but you could for... train somebody else to do that. It's very That's, difficult yeah. to train people to do that, though, because you've got to be able to hear yourself in the minute and also project what's going to happen in the next half hour. There are a series of techniques which I think could be taught over a relatively long period of time, but you need to be able well, to... Well, maybe you could develop a simpler method. You know, I mean, it would be, think about it. Maybe you could do like a five-minute intro for mm -hmm. the show and then have this co-host that varies from week to week who follows some sort of formula, and he just does it. Here's the problem. There are various – it's not even social dysfunction. There have been fights that have occurred in shows that I haven't been on, and there have been like long-standing – I mean, there's always been a problem with certain folks who have egos yeah. who are attached to it. Yeah. But the negative repercussions of these fights, which are always over really stupid things, is just something which I think is <laughs> well, ultimately... The whole thing is about model railroading, so... <laughs> Talk yeah, about stupid things. I, I try... I mean, look, at the shows that I'm on and are able to focus, I do return to that point regularly, Heron. Um, but yeah, it is a very strange thing that I've actually created this thing which is... The interesting thing from it is wherever I go, there is a listener. I mean, even here, there is a large listener base. And they just, they exist. Well, it's, apparently there's no other, there isn't any other place for them to go, is there? There are, there are other podcasts, but they just haven't. I mean, I've, I've talked Have to the other podcasters. Have you checked them out and, and listened to what they're doing? Well, in large part, I created Model Rail Radio in a reaction to the podcasts that existed in the space initially. Yeah. And... None of the other podcasts, even though they are all enamored with various aspects of the success that I've had model rail, with Model Rail Radio, I think they actually appreciate that there is some sitting for five, six hours. I mean, even though I take breaks and get water and what have you, and navigating through these things, by the end of this thing, particularly when you've had 20 plus people on plus questions and all this kind of stuff. It's a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think other people just aren't comfortable with, and you've got to be able to move relatively swiftly, particularly if you have callers on that aren't really contributing anything. You've got to have a polite way to get, you know, yeah, fifteen minutes yeah, out of those yeah, people yeah, and then move right. on. You know, yeah. Um, well, then it's also about training your listeners and callers to be better. <laughs> I've noticed. I've been able to. What I've done is YouTube clips. I've done YouTube clips of me editing the show after the fact and shown people their various speech impediments graphically and audio-wise. And that has worked. I've had a series of callers that have had good content but have had serious speech problems. Yeah. And by showing my editing of the show and showing in particular 
how many ums per minute I have to reduce in order to make yeah. your audio listenable and these kind of things. And they improve. By yeah. viewing those things, they actually improve. Sure. Once you're, yeah, awareness inevitably leads to improvement. It, 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 yeah. Certainly. It's almost inevitable. Yes. <laughs> if you can get them. That's the thing is telling people this shit doesn't mean anything. Being told that you, you do too many ums and all that is totally irrelevant. Knowing the, the fact may be irrelevant. But if you see it and get it, mm-hmm. <laughs> then uh, – I've been then, very then successful it, with this method. And I don't – I mean I do some of it tongue-in-cheek obviously. But I've been very successful with this method in terms of showing people how they can improve – various aspects and they get the feedback almost instantly i mean most of them are mortified initially because they actually realize that although this thing goes on in a live format and they're talking they don't actually appreciate how these speech ticks <laughs> exist you know have you heard my podcast where i i just it's all, the whole podcast is like 45 seconds long <laughs> of mots from germany going um uh, I want to say that that you know when um, uh, uh, and what I did is I strung. I mean, he does that all the time anyway. It's sort of annoying, mm. <laughs> you know. But again, he's English is a second language. He's struggling with it. You, you have know? to be very. Rec- I mean, I always put in extra editing for even from the Biota days. I always put in extra editing on people where English is not their. Yeah, language because you have to do that. I mean, you well, what to. I did is I edited like forty-five seconds of them together <laughs> into just one long series yeah. of these hems and haws, and then ended it. it, it, it he finally said, uh, "Never mind," <laughs> and then went right on to the music. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting problem that you have. I mean, uh, uh, I guess listening to the last crop of maybe fifteen podcasts that you've produced. And I have no sense what's on those because those were months ago. Mm. You so, know, so that's like I have no idea what the hell was going on. Back aside then. from Tom Vine, most of them are pretty unlistable from my current ears mm-hmm. because they are quintessential bad Gendo recordings. I mean, they're quintessential people who are clearly interacting with you without having thought about what they're saying. Well, most people haven't thought about much of anything. That's the whole point, (laughs) is to get them to start thinking about it. Yes. See, it may not be useful to you, but it's it's real useful to them. The thing is that they don't... The the frustration that I have with the Gendo podcast format is that your listeners who call in and participate don't listen, or in large part don't listen to the recordings that you have up there. And I think part of that is your focus on getting them listening to the one Stupidities podcast, and now you have a few of them, but and not hearing... I'm also directing people to 428 exactly. now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still having the vast number of downloads of the strange recording that we have? Yes, yeah. It still is much more than any other one. <laughs> Beats the hell out of me. Yeah. It was a particularly <laughs> strange recording. Oh, the, no, one of them, but it was earlier than that. One of them I told the um, infamous um, Wozniak Minder story where we turned off the recorder. And I think people have gone back. But you actually, I think, on your end, turned off the recorder as well. But that was a much earlier one. Well, I don't even know what you're talking about, so. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> for hardcore listeners of the Stone Ape podcast... When I last lived in the Bay Area, I spent a good amount of time with Steve Wozniak and his people. And one of the people was like a kind of mafioso character. And one of the funders for 
one of the companies that we were going to start was killed mysteriously in a plane crash. And there was like an extended investigation, but he had created this financial instrument for her before she died. And then he came to me and said, oh, I want to create the same kind of financial instrument around you. <laughs> and that's where I got the fuck out, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the, um, yeah, that's the story that was removed, but it was removed from an earlier one. It's interesting because of all my podcasts, I think of the Stonite legacy, like the recordings that we did together. If I'm hit by a bus, I think this probably represents probably the, <laughs> the most well-rounded discussion that I've had with anyone. And I mean, I think that's the importance for me in terms of our prior discussions, Heron, that we've touched on so many different things. And I, and I still, I still listen to them periodically to remind myself of what my life was like when I lived in Las Vegas. The good parts <laughs> of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was then this is now. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. yeah and, it's, and it's whatever it's going to be tomorrow ought to be interesting anyway. Yes. It's a funny thing being in this part of the world. It's a funny thing being... Where are you? Uh, I'm still... I'm, when we last talked, I was about a mile different from where I am now. I'm still living in the South Bay. I live in, in Campbell um, in California. So I've got San Jose literally across the street. If I walk across the street, I'm in San Jose. And if I walk half a mile down the road, I've got Los Gatos, and that's where yeah. I am. Okay. So, and through a series of quite interesting ebbs and flows, including a large number of the people I work with resigning, I'm still at the same place I was when we last talked. And yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very strange company to work for, but I continue to work for them. Um, the other companies in the area really, I mean, I, I have through my time here done periodic investigations of other companies and none of them interest me. In fact, yeah. towards the end of last year, I was seriously considering the potential of going to another place, and they all, even the startups, are not doing anything that really interests me. Yeah. So, here I stay, by pure inertia alone. <laughs> well, that's enough. That's a good reason. Yeah, you got to have a good reason to do something, to move off that, if that's working. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I think <clears throat> probably I could spend a few more years doing what I'm doing, but in the parallel to this... I've also, I mean, from the experience that I had at this Artificial Life conference, I've completely changed my writing. I'm not doing any more academic publishing. I'm supposed to have one more chapter, which I basically effectively reneged on. The academic publishing has gone in so many... I mean, I, I had written a sufficient amount that I'm still, I'm still owed a book that I'm in that's apparently coming to me within two to three months' time. But that whole thing had just got more expensive and more ridiculous in terms of the cost of the books and in terms of the chapters. So I'm now writing for myself, but for something which I hope to be published with a, a large, you know, open source. See, I don't get that. See, I just don't get that. Why not just publish on the internet? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing the software component of that open source, so <clears> you'll be able to get all the software. But I think the, the idea that... Oh, so this is about getting paid for it? No, it's about, well, in the long term it is. I mean, in my surveying... What I have done is I have said, I have this body of work here. What are you guys doing? And I've done this with large companies, and I've done this with small startups, and they all pitch me their own kind of perverse view associated with what I should be doing with them. And none of them really appeal to me at all. Yeah. So the only way I can define what I do in a formal sense, which will create a small company or a startup or introduce me to a large company or a startup, is to actually write a book 
that people in this community will read that says exactly what I'm doing. But again, why does it have to be a book? The important thing is that people read it, right? So the first thing is I have, as you well know, I have a huge body of open source work that exists and people can access that and they have in order to get, I mean, I kind of could do it through particular podcasting formats. I kind of could do it through going through particular conferences, but quite frankly, my experience attending the Artificial Life Conference, which undoubtedly is probably the worst conference to attend in these circumstances, <laughs> has left me realizing that I need yeah. something. I mean, I've had I've had a friend, for example, who published a book with this with these publishers, and he now because this is what he wants to do uh, is lecturing at Oxford University. It's not what I'd want to do. But he's also yeah. been able to start. No, a book can be really good. Yeah. You're right. It's just that, it, uh, I mean, that's just one of the possibilities. I, I mean, I'm looking at somewhat the same possibilities as you are. And, uh, and there, you know, maybe there's a book, maybe there's not. But, but for me, the Internet provides, God, every avenue in the world to put information out there. It does. Oh, without question. And clearly I've already used and abused those aspects. The, <laughs> the element that isn't there is the aspect of kind of, I mean, for example, historically, maybe I might have thought of this like a PhD, you know. Now I don't think of that anymore. That's not even part of my vision. I don't think having a PhD because the quality of PhDs that I've met has not really well, it's impressed just, me. It doesn't really mean much. It exactly. just means you can jump through their hoops to do certain kinds of limited mm-hmm. things. Exactly. Wonderful. So the potential <laughs> of doing – so there are political elements in this book as well. It's not just about software. It's not just about using Noble Ape. It's about actually starting to dissect some of the – Political you think so- that's wise to put those two together? Well, th- some of these things... Okay, so some of the examples in the book are about basically... In the past five years, there are a number of companies, Facebook's a good example of this, that basically farms your information in order to provide you with content, as Google does, as all these companies do. But the quality of the content that they provide you, having farmed your information, is subpar. It's not a, of quality of information. And the argument in the book is that the way you change that is by rather than dealing with these companies and providing the companies with this information, you maintain this information through a series of agents, noble-like things, that then do local transactions with other agents that you want to work with. It's basically about taking what is now commoditized information and not necessarily re-walling it within a garden, but actually having kind of creative entities which hold some of your information that act under your bidding and aren't commercial entities to be sold. So that, I think, is political, fundamentally. (laughs) And it's inescapable, because when you start exploring these things, the only way that individuals can use them productively, which is what I argue in the book, is through this kind of self-empowerment. So there is an element there. It's, I mean, noble ape has always been a metaphor for things. The apes, when I lived in Australia, used to live on an island. When I left Australia, the apes got off the island. There are all these kind of metaphors that have gone through the development of noble ape. And I think the thing about this book is that it actually describes taking what's in Noble Ape and using it for a wide variety of different purposes that, firstly, these folk at the Artificial Life Conference clearly have never even thought about. But yeah. also, I mean, I've, I've topic-tested. I've written five chapters so far, and I hope to write 12. But I've topic-tested two or three chapters 
with two or three people that I, actually five or six people now, that I respect in terms of their general ideas, and they've tested very well within that small community. Now I'm describing the publisher. Tim O'Reilly, who, who is the head of O'Reilly Publishing, has commented very positively about an article I wrote a few years ago. So he's already on some level interested in the political technology element, and this is embodied in a book which is ultimately about programming with Noble Ape. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think it's it's something that I can invest my time into with the view that even if it doesn't get published by O'Reilly, I can still release it. I will probably release it open source. People will download it. They'll do what they want with it. Hopefully some people yeah, will. Yeah, the important thing yeah. is to produce it exactly. and get it out to there to people. Exactly. And if you can make some money, cool. <laughs> you know? The secondary, I mean, the thing... Maybe because we haven't even discussed this. In fact, it's really quite perverse to even have this discussion. But I, in in my current employment, I'm earning more than I could ever professionally imagine to earn previously. And financially, although I still we still live, you know, worse than we lived in Vegas, we still live in a smaller apartment. Well, you probably can save some of it. Exactly. That's exactly the point. Just putting it away. So, so I'm in a strange period in my life currently where whilst I'm worked stupid, quite literally, um, I also see that there is medium-term benefit in going through this process if it enables me to do what I want to do at the end. It's nice to feel stable, you know, I mean, even though it's an illusion. Without question. I don't, <laughs> I don't see this as being stability. In fact, I see it as the antithesis well, of but you're not. Yeah, but you're not worried month to month about paying the rent. But I'm, well, the kind of environment I work in, and this is why a lot of people leave, is that I am worried month to month whether I will have a job in the month following. It's a very different yeah, but, environment. But even if you did lose your job in a month, you wouldn't be out on the street one month later. No. And a lot of people, a lot more people are in that condition. Without question. You're, you know, and you're so you're. I, I got gotcha. you. You're right. It's, but see, that's just that's just the truth. There is no stability. That's, there is no security. Yes. Get used to it. Amen. Embrace it. Even. <laughs> Not just get used to it, but embrace it. Yes. Well, whatever. You just yeah. quit whining about it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm in this curious position currently where yeah, it's just it's actually quite obscene in that level. But it's also something which I appreciate. And look, older and wiser friends of mine have said to me. This happens to many people. You just have to live through it and save <laughs> you know? and just get done what you need to get done. But you need to make sure that there's a soft landing. No, at you the don't other need side. to make you don't need to do any goddamn thing at all. You're going to do whatever the hell you do. And there ain't no right or wrong objective measure of, of any of it. You know, you are the measure of it. You can do what you will. And live with the consequences. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. But, um, yeah, interesting times, Heron, interesting times. So, if you were... Because when we, when we last spoke, in fact, probably the colour of most of our discussions was that you would never consider publishing a book, and now you're talking about... Oh, no I, I, no, I don't think I'd ever said that. It's just... Um, I, it's hard for me to imagine the situations in which that could occur specifically. I mean, it would seem to me I'd really need a, a, a co-writer. I don't think I can write a book myself. But if I m- met the right person, probably, I think probably could produce several books, actually. 
So when we talked, and this is something that I still feel is unfinished, <laughs> the, <Good. laughs> the, the thing that I've always wanted to do, particularly with this format, but also could be done in writing, and I've talked to you explicitly about doing this in writing previously, is just... So there's a, there's a website called The Political Compass, and in the last election... Obama and Romney. So you've got to imagine you've got to imagine the graph here. This is a graph of I think it's 20 squares by 20 squares, which gives at least political spectrum in two dimensions. Okay. Obama and Romney in terms of Obama's actions and I guess to a certain extent Romney's actions and what they said existed in the same square. <laughs> Obama was slightly ever so slightly yeah. to the left. And yeah. Romney was ever so slightly to the right. <laughs> in the they, one square, yeah. they, it, out it, of 400. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and my view is that this is an ever-focusing point. What you are actually seeing is like the id of corporate America in terms of the discussions that exist currently. And the podcast and the book and the writing that I really would love to do is a comparative, not even necessarily comparative politics, but just talk about the spectrum that is is non-existent in the psyche of, firstly, contemporary American media, but also underneath that, there are so many people that have been language programmed through this nonsense. And I think you would be a good co-author with that, because you really understand the the language part of that. <laughs> and that's, that's the language part of that, yes. Yeah. Um, a paradoxical heronism within a compliment. Um, so, yeah, that is something that I... And I it's Actually, fun. but the word the sort of passes in that particular <laughs> use, so I wouldn't jump on that one. You'd, you'd allow it. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. It's not always wrong. It's only wrong 94% of the time. Good, good. I snuck in with the 6%. Yeah, well, so, you, yeah. You're, you're, the thing is, see, you You've already been infected by awareness of this shit, hmm. Hmm. you know. But so you you are aware of it now, and it does make a difference. So that is something that I've, I've I mean, through one of these extended discussions that someone else was recording associated with Mongrel Radio, I jumped in. One of our participants, who's a fellow who used to be very, he was there were like three people, literally three people who would post on forums and post and say really nasty things about model rail radio. And this fellow was one of those people who is now completely turned around. He now calls into shows and what have you. And I have had some success, as we've talked about previously, with the likes of Gerald de Jong and other folks who have gone through that process. But he lives in the northern part of Michigan, which is really closer to Canada, literally in the middle of nowhere. And he's a kind of hunter... You know, survivalist type person. And he's got a model railroad in his garage. Well, no, he keeps getting divorced. So his model railroad spaces keep getting either burnt down by ex-wives or things like that. There's a long, torrid history. Oh, so he's, okay, he's got his story. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, he's got multiple ex-wives. That's always a good start. So I think... Anyway, so through this, I said, look, he's, he's picking for his hunting podcast. He has picked up the model rail radio format. He's run with it for maybe three or four episodes with the view that he really likes the format. Now he's discovered it. Um, so I ran past him in particular with a thought because obviously, and it's funny because there's a, the epicenter of model railroading. And although um, the, the academic who hosted me in Michigan became very upset when I said, isn't this a, isn't this a 
you know, a Republican state. He said, oh, no, no, no. Because, of course, they're, you know, they've got the flags on the lawn to say that they're Democrats. And I just, but my perceptions of Michigan in particular was just that it is so... Um, Cold. <laughs> yeah. But, so, for example, while I was there, while I was there, I always, because of the airlines and the TSA, I always pack with a single small suitcase that I carry on, but I'm not one of these people that has, like, you know, 50 pounds worth of luggage that they carry on. I carry on a small suitcase, which is literally the size of a laptop bag, maybe slightly larger. Um, and I, it forces me to go and use laundry mats wherever I go. So I had this experience in, in Lansing, in East Lansing, walking across the border into the bad section of town. <laughs> into this, where people use laundry Where mats. people use laundry mats. <laughs> That's right. In the good section of town, of course, everybody has their own goddamn washer. And well, dryer. they own houses, you know, with, <laughs> yeah, with right. washers and dryers. And it was just absolutely the drop. The, the, and this is the thing. This is, and it's winter in Michigan. No, no, this wasn't in winter. This was in the middle of summer, so it was just humid. But the thing that struck me was I, for example, and Chicago is now completely gentrified, the central part of Chicago. But what I used to like in Chicago was, and I've done this in L.A. too, I mean, south central L.A., downtown L.A., from the central business district into the kind of local Latino community, you have this amazing kind of drop where you cross a street and immediately you realize that there is an economic divide there. Yeah, you're in a different part of town right exactly. now. Yeah. <laughs> so Chicago has thankfully, to a certain regard, gentrified. So you don't have that experience in Chicago anymore, but I certainly had that. I mean, the thing about East Lansing was even, even in the non-university sections, you would see just like boarded up buildings and things. It was really quite striking. You've got this beautiful, you know, n- mid-19th, century university with all these mid-19th century dedicated buildings and then you cross the street and you're literally in kind of boarded up warehouse territory Mm. the the economic divide is that stark you go from suburbs that are academic suburbs with academics that live in you know nice houses and you cross the divide and you're into uh rundown apartments and laundry mat territory yeah and i thought to myself (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Uh, rundown apartments and laundry territory. <laughs> That's right. You don't see a lot of laundromats in Beverly Hills, do you? No. No. Enough, no. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we live in the cusp of laundromat territory, and I'm I'm a firm advocate. I mean, I know we'll probably end up in a house and end up in the suburban parts, but I'm a firm, if nothing more, for the kind of quality. You of- know that. Jesus, that's amazing. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I got hung up on that. <laughs> it's Well, we used to live like that in Las Vegas. I mean, a large yeah. portion of our communication, aside from, I mean, we had a crazy neighbor who would, you know, pin his revolver out at various points and <laughs> against neighbors. <laughs> aside from that. Yeah. But you, you, I mean, that's part of living in the U.S. to a certain extent. But I think the, yeah, I think, anyway, moving from my knowledge of the future... Um, to the discussion. So I think there's just a need, there's a kind of narrative need for political analysis, which is completely independent of the nonsense that is dished up. And that was a project that I had floated past you, that I thought you certainly noted that you might enjoy. Um, I'm always interested in using language to change people's minds. (laughs) So when you describe a co-author... Are you describing the role of an editor, or are you describing someone who is fundamentally going to be writing more text than you are? 
Um, probably someone who is on board with the agenda, knows what I'm doing, knows my work, and uh, wants to get it into the world with me. Yeah, not just somebody that's going to come in and work under my direction. It's going to have to be somebody who is on board. I'm really very pleased that you're off TeamSpeak and the Zeitgeist stuff, too. I know you've I'm had, not off TeamSpeak. Well, you've got your local server, but you're not. You're off the Zeitgeist yeah. TeamSpeak. Uh, yeah, server, right. right. I'm having to do with them. Yeah, right. I mean, that was in terms of what I've heard. Well, that from, was a good start. That was yeah. just a place I was parked for a while. <laughs> you know, this is much better having my own server. Yes. I. But the, the, the frustration that I had through our conversations, which kind of percolates, but I don't think I ever said to you explicitly. Maybe I did. Was that I always thought that that was the wrong place for you? Zeitgeist. Yeah. I think the quality... It doesn't really make any difference. That's where I was. True. But, I mean... That you, was what was available. Yeah. But you, talk, you talked about the time when you... Was it called Skypecast? What was the Skype alternative? Yeah. yeah, Skypecast. Yeah, that was awesome. That was the best. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, I think the ability... The, the, the baggage... I, I listened to one of our recordings in particular where I did deconstruction of the male versus female Zeitgeist user... Yeah. And the fact that there was so many kind of men who were just in their Listen, own... I have yeah. no interest in the zeitgeist movement. I never have. My interest be, is in, yeah. in in the planet, in what's going on today. The zeitgeist movement was a place that I found that I could meet and talk to people who were interested in the stuff I was interested in talking about. Mm. That's That's my only reason I was there. And I'm in alignment, more or less, with, uh, with their vague goals, whatever they are, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, that's the, that's the only connection I have to that. They, I, you know, somehow let me uh, get on there. And that was great. And what are they using these services for now? They're just using them for closed meetings, or what are they using ba- them for? Basically, yeah, it's still there, but nobody goes there for any, I mean, there's no, you know, dialogue or talk about anything other than, you know, they go there for meetings, groups of people who are on projects and stuff, and and that's it. Does that indicate to you that there has been a change in the movement in some way? I, I don't know. I, I don't really give a shit. <laughs> you know? I, I'm surprised it's still going, frankly. I don't know, you know, I just don't care about it. It's not important to me. So I don't think yeah, a, a large part of our conversations were also associated with using Facebook. Yeah, I liked Facebook, and I mean, I follow your Facebook photo posts primarily because I think that's one of the ways that I use Facebook. Yeah, but in terms of the folk that Facebook has brought to you, do you have you have you found like friendships? Or I mean, I'm talking. No, about- I'm not looking for that. What I'm looking for is people uh, to start thinking about things. But you're looking for a co-author as well through this process, perhaps. Well, no, no, I mean, no, I see the the Facebook page. Well, certainly the Facebook page is just me sort of putting myself out there. Uh, And and there are a couple different aspects to it. And, And I only recently started seeing this as sort of like a little mini university, actually. Hmm. Uh, I could see putting up lessons and things here. I mean, this is a real interesting piece of software that that might be used quite interestingly, I think. But I don't know. I'm I'm just sort of right at this point. I'm just sort of hanging out there and 
messing around with it and and getting acquiring friends <laughs> you know i've gone through and perhaps this is just general deconstruction associated with other experiences but i i mean facebook now for me is almost exclusively model rail related folk mm-hmm. and a small number of artificial related life related folk and yeah. a small number of family members and occasionally they will all come together. But the thing that strikes me is that um, the peop- I've, I've been tracking the people that get the most comments and discussion and the kinds of posts that they do and these kind of things, and none of this stuff really interests me. Uh, let, let me do some. I'm going to hang up and call you right back. Not is that wrong. okay with you? Certainly. Hello, Heron. Yes, I, I wanted to restart the recording so that I ditto. I did on my end as well. Yeah. Oh, good. You're taking. Oh, good. We recovered then. <laughs> and you know, I'll probably do more editing and actually write notes associated with this as well. Oh, that good. That's. I'm so happy you do that. <laughs> See, you're just a much nicer, more dedicated guy than I am. It's part of being able to. It's. It's funny actually because Stone Ape as a thing, as an independent thing, from what you do and what I do has actually developed quite a listener base over the many months that we haven't been recording this. And I think it's been one of my frustrations, actually, that we haven't had an opportunity to do periodic recordings in large part. Oh, when you say, wait a minute, a a base, what are you talking about? How many people and how often? I I don't count people. What interests me Well, then what gives you the idea that that it's increasing? iTunes reviews. Okay, so people are writing about it? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, see, I never knew that. Okay. Blog posts, these kind of things. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, it, it exists as a body of work. How many from- people would you say there are? I mean, have you noticed individual names, you know, of people who are uh, saying interesting things about any of this? Uh, I've not gone to that level of granularity. It, 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 to be frank, it has given me a sense of shame when these people <laughs> contact me. Because firstly, it makes me reflect upon a time that, I mean, we are going back in April, and I haven't been back to Vegas, but we're going back to Vegas in April. My wife's been back three times since we lived there. And part of that is going to be doing a house inspection on our house in Vegas, and part of that is going to be catching up with people that I worked with. I had two jobs while I was in Vegas, and I'm doing separate meals with the two different groups that I worked with. The first response that I've gotten from most of those people are, are you moving back full time? And I think the the welcome, which was really an anti-welcome to moving to this part of the world in terms of actually interacting with people versus the um, even precursory friendships that I had through employment in Vegas, is very distinct um, and the environments are very different. So my feeling with regards to Stone Ape recordings historically as they've existed prior to well, the one we did when I first moved here and this one, is that it represents a time in my life where I had free time to think. <laughs> yes. And that I look back How on... How nice. <laughs> that I look back on with envy. Yes, it's a wonderful thing. And to a certain degree, distress, because I feel that I'm being language programmed fundamentally in ways which I need to... Indeed you are. Um, but this ability has to be both has to be private fundamentally for a wide variety of reasons. But I'm thinking increasingly that we need to do these things just as catharsis. In Wait a minute, what things is, do, do this we public need recording? To do? do a public oh. recording? Oh, okay, in the Stone Ape format. 
as has okay. been historically laid down by the body of work that we've generated. The thing that strikes me about the iTunes reviews and the periodic contact that I've received... So if I go to iTunes and look up Stone Ape, I'll be able to read these reviews? I, I mean, the thing I do with... the I probably should caveat this, and I probably should actually find the reviews uh, <laughs> explicitly and then show them to you. Yeah, but I'd like to see them. The I'm thing curious. that I do with Model <laughs> Rail Radio is I do... I used to, I don't anymore, but I do a iTunes countries are walled, so you can't see the reviews in other countries when you're on the US iTunes page. Oh, really? You have to go to that country physically and look explicitly oh. in order to see the reviews. And there's it's, no option to have no. multiple things. No, because it's all to do with copyrighted music, and they do it in a country-by-country oh, yeah, country yeah, basis. Yeah, yeah. So sure. the funny thing associated with these Stone Ape things is, is I'll be on Model Rail Radio looking at the Model Rail Radio reviews, and I'll just flip over to Stone Ape, and I'll see them. The reviews in the UK, the US... Australia. It's always surprised me when I've kind of stumbled upon them, and it's as I've said, it, it's a, it's been a mournful experience for me to see these things, because really I've not been sure whether or not I could actually restart these recordings, um, because it's it, it's just not the space that I'm in, in terms of an ability to talk with the kind of freedom and frequency and things that we used to do previously. Um, but my hope is that we can continue this into the future because certainly there's a lot still to explore. <laughs> yeah, you noticed that, huh? Yes. yes. <laughs> if, if nothing more is a kind of cathartic deconstruction, a mutual deconstruction. But um, the, the thing that strikes me is that um, the anonymous posts and the posts of people that just have really gotten benefit out of our conversations um, have touched me in particular. And I think there seem to be, even if there are only two, but I know that there are more than that, there are a number of folks that listen to these podcasts. <laughs> you know, I had a guy call me, this is back in the Skype cast days, mm-hmm. and the very, one of the things that really got me hooked is old guy is like 78 mm-hmm. years old or something I was talking to, and he was from Germany, and he was living in Germany, but he'd spent like 40 years or something like that living in Australia. Mm. So his English... He sounded more like an Aussie. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, so as he and his wife were living in some place that are retired in Germany, and he had heard one of my recordings with somebody, and apparently it, it just struck, you know, totally blew him away for some reason. This guy was breaking down crying mm. and thanking me for, uh, for I, I had no idea what the hell he was even talking about, <laughs> you know, but still it's, it's, it's a weird situation to be in when someone is crying and thanking you for changing their life <laughs> and you don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> But you can see that on some level it must be uh, either the guy cries a lot or it actually means something to him. Well, whatever it is, it's his experience, you know. It doesn't really make any difference. It doesn't concern me, actually, <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but it, it really it shook me that when it happened because I'd, I'd never experienced anything like that before. And uh, really made me sort of stop i don't know what but it was that was a defining moment in some ways it felt weird but it felt good too i mean that was the idea of doing all this shit is that maybe some of this stuff can be helpful for somebody and once in a while maybe it's really helpful for somebody you know so (laughs) i don't know i should have just said oh you're welcome (laughs) 
So when that occurred to you, you've, you've described a kind of decompression associated with that. I mean, was it only in re-listening or thinking? Well, you had the experience, obviously. You have an immediacy of someone crying. I mean, when it happened. Yes. Yeah. But following that, you've obviously done some decompression associated oh, with yeah. this. Yeah, I've well, thought about it, you yeah, mean. <laughs> yeah. But also, the, it's not just the process of thinking about it. When you think about it, Noble Ape has changed since we last talked as well, and it's changed in a number of kind of beautiful ways. But part of that is the notion of reflection and what one actually does through the reflection process in a simulated form. But what you're describing here is ultimately breaking down the experience and then reflecting on it in a kind of piecemeal way which has ultimately changed your relationship with this experience. Okay. And what's interesting about this is, on some level, the the Stonian archetype should be unmoved by this experience. <laughs> Stonian archetype? Yes, the Stonian archetype. But you do, you do feel <laughs> genuinely moved by this experience, on some level. Well, I... I'm not genuinely moved. I mean, shit, I'm genuinely moved many times a day. I don't know. I don't know really what you're talking about. I mean, on one part, you say that you, that this was a kind of, you know, I mean, you, you said three separate things. You described the experience. You describe the fact that you should be dismissive of this experience. And then you describe oh, that you took away from anything. it. Oh, really? Is that what you heard? Oh, that's interesting. No, that's a, I wouldn't say anything like that at all. What would you say? Well, I, I don't know what I'd say. What's the question? You said that this was a point of impact for you when you realized that you had had that kind of impact on someone else. Well, I, didn't, I don't think that's exactly the way I said it. But, yeah, I realized that – well, I, this is, there, are way, there are lots of different ways to talk about that. None of them are the truth. You know, they're just – Without question. It's a real rich – yeah, let me just say that. This was a rich mine to dig. <laughs> I mean, this is the nature of restating the paradoxical elements of the three points that I heard you make. So, moving from this... <laughs> yeah, let's move on. Moving from this, I guess the, the these recordings have had an impact on a variety of people. And... Yes, apparently. Not, you know, I get emails every once in a while... You know, or I get comments on my Facebook page. Um, it's very gratifying. It's really nice when someone says thanks, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that. With both the Artificial Life Conference and the Model Rail thing following, I had people come up to me and thank me for doing the recordings yeah, that I'd done. Yeah. Isn't that great? At first, at the Artificial Life Conference, they both took time, though. That was the interesting thing. For two days at the Model Rail thing, aside from people I'd known who'd been on the show who kind of took me around or I took out to lunch or things like that, but just to have anonymous people, it took maybe three, two, three days in both circumstances for anonymous people to come up to me. One fellow, I was folding up chairs at the Artificial Life Conference or something like that, or I was moving through a hall and I talked. I was talking to a fellow next to me, and the fellow came up to me and said, I know your voice. Thank you so much for what you've done. I had Polish academics come up to me and say that they had, I had helped them through some dark times, oh, basically, associated with doing Bioda. I mean, to, look, to yeah. be frank, I've, I've kind of poo-pooed these experiences through our discussion, and it's associated with my, you know, you know, my follow-on. See, I feel like... 
I can die at any point, and I know that there are few, you know, maybe a couple handfuls of people in the world who have been dramatically mm. uh, altered by having run into me. Mm. You know, and I think you know that's not a bad legacy, even if it's just a handful of people. So the experiences. This is the thing that strikes me because I'd much rather be talking to Heron Stone now than I would be to talking to Terence McKenna now if he were still alive. And the thing that strikes me is what. What in these people, and we've talked about Watts, we've talked about McKenna, we've talked about Leary previously, makes them the kind of idealised folk that they are versus the quality of conversation or the quality of ideas that someone like yourself can put out there? Uh, well, I think we're all playing the same game. So this, I, I, those are my compatriots. Certainly, you know? <laughs> without question. But I guess the thing that has interested me through both the McKenna and the Leary legacy, I mean, McKenna and Leary, in terms of the way that they got to the positions that they are, are, are very distinct. But the, the notion of the kind of paid conferences aspect of McKenna, when you saw him talk, you didn't have to pay to see him talk, did you? No. He no, was at that was... point in his career where he was doing yeah. public speaking and paid yeah. talking. But the right. only part yeah. of his career was all from these, and they were $500 retreats, which was, you know, real money even yeah, today. Yeah, I'm right. So this notion that he emerged... Well, somebody's got to pay for it. <laughs> they know? don't pay for our podcasts. I mean, no, that's, I think... Well, I think but that's not the same thing, you know. I mean, that doesn't require me and driving up to Big Sur and spending four days there. True. <laughs> big difference. In fact, that's the thing that really excited McKenna towards the end of his life because he could see his ability to do what he did but not have to leave Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, I wish I'd known him better, you know. I actually exchanged a few emails with him mm -hmm. and uh, he was, you know, well, we never, I mean, we didn't actually have a friendship or anything, mm -hmm. but, but um, yeah. I know a couple of people who were quite close with him. Oh, that's something I've done that you would really like. So my friend Bruce Damer, who was friends with McKenna but not Leary, yeah. inherited about uh, a quarter of Timothy Leary's books. I have footage, which I, I recorded half this on YouTube. I should have recorded both halves. But it's me with Bruce Damer and my wife behind me going through Timothy Leary's book collection. <laughs> this is un. You cannot. I mean, he he has it in a pig barn. He's in no way. He talks about being an archivist. I've been critical throughout these recordings associated with Bristol, but he has this in a pig barn. A, a I mean, it's got slats out to the open air, but in plastic tubs, he has Timothy Leary's book collection and his travel receipts and his wallet and his little black book with all the phone numbers in it. <laughs> He owns it. He bought it or what? No, they basically, they the New York Public Library wanted all his primary writing, but they didn't want all his books. Mm -hmm. So, so Bruce, they just abandoned him and he's yeah, got no, it. They would, have, they would have been literally thrown into a dumpster. Bruce yeah. Damer was given okay. a small amount of time to get to San Francisco where the library Yeah, do something was. with them or we're throwing exactly. them out. <laughs> so he picked them up. Going through it, there's a company called ABE Books, which basically connects together all the second-hand, or a number of the second-hand book sellers in the US and, and the rest of the world. So having gone through, I took iPhone video footage with the view that what I was doing was actually scanning the books and getting a sense of what the books were, because Bruce Damer is 
just he's got this so many projects going on and none of them pay him so all of them have very little <laughs> priority but he uh-huh. so the experience going through the book collection i had my iphone and stopped at various points so from that i probably purchased a couple of hundred dollars worth of books that were in timothy leary's library with the view that these were books where timothy leary's reading interests and my reading interests overlap so i have uh, maybe half a dozen of the Psychedelic Review, which is a, the academic publication that he was a part of prior to, well, actually over the period where he was kicked out of Harvard. Um, and it's really fascinating stuff to actually go back to these things that were published in the 1960s. Mm. I have an El Perfecto comic that was used to um, raise funds for him for his legal defense and these kind of things. I mean, just little bits of history. He's one of my heroes, man. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> to be in his library and to see, because he wrote notes in a lot of the books as he read them, it was just it's, it was just an amazing experience. I think Bruce could, you know, I mean, there are so many aspects of Bruce's life where he could set up something and people could come and thumb through Timothy Leary's library. Well, these are, are another good candidate for PDFing. Well, that's putting what, on the uh, internet. So the Internet Archive offered to do that for him. And obviously these are all, almost all of them are copyrighted works. Um, and they wouldn't, they wanted to actually own the books as well. And I think Bruce didn't want that. He didn't want the books disappearing. He wanted them to exist in, a, in yeah, an archive. They, yeah, they need to be there. Yeah. So they would go to the Internet Archive, but the books then would disappear, which was the Internet Archives. And Bruce... I don't know. They never, they never really resolved itself. But yes, exactly. I made eventually the books will turn to dust. No, they're going to turn <laughs> to dust. They're going to turn to dust within the next ten years. They're going to disintegrate yeah. within that period yeah. of time. They're yeah. in a non-temperature controlled yeah, environment. Gonna, with aspects just, of the well, and even if they were yeah. under, again, they're irrelevant. If we ca- we can capture the most important part of it anyway in PDFs. My thinking initially is the most important part is the collection of covers just to know what was there, because these uh-huh. books exist elsewhere. This is what I did. This is the point about videoing this, is that I have the covers, I look through the books, the books that interest me, I was able to order through ABE books and get not the same book, but, well, get the same book, but in a f- different physical form, obviously. Yeah. So right. I now yeah. have those things and know that they're part of the Leary archive as well. Yeah. So it was an amazing experience, Heron. I bet. I'm I'm going to have to do something really terrible here. The luxury of us being able to record this was based on the fact that my wife was at a quilting event. She has just returned home, as has been the legacy of these Stone Age recordings. So I'm going to have to call it a night, unfortunately, from our conversation this evening. But we need to endeavour not to allow 14 months to go past before we do this again. It is totally within your power to make it happen. Amen. And I'm going to make it happen, Harry. <laughs> okay. You have a good night. It's been wonderful chatting. Take good care. night, Tom. See you.